You're listening to Well Now, Slate's podcast on health and wellness. I'm Dr. Kavita Patel. And I'm Maya Fowler. Oof, it is award season in Hollywood and folks are up in arms. Fans are debating the shocks and snubs of the Oscar nominations. People are all in their feelings. And here at Well Now, we're thinking about how movies and television shape the way many of us see health and wellness beyond the star-studded ceremonies. Maya, from shows like House to Grey's Anatomy to what I call the OG ER, it actually helped me get through medical school and pass some board questions, believe it or not. It seems Hollywood can't get enough of medicalized drama. Dr. Ross, peak flow's gone from 190 to 300. Mm-hmm. How's her gas? Much better. Sandy, you are doing great. But what happens when so much of what we think we know about health comes from the dream factory? In a moment, we're going to hear from one of the country's first physicians to find a second career as a television writer. But first, Kavita, let's talk a little bit about how we view wellness in entertainment. It's just like we want to combat all these myths about our health and that our patients go onto social media to try to find information that we know just sometimes is true or it's not. We sometimes have to push back on similar misrepresentations about healthcare as it shows up in media itself. So how does Hollywood's portrayal of wellness affect your work, Kavita, as a physician? And what do you actually think about it? So I would say that Hollywood's portrayal of wellness would be welcome if it would help promote things that we know Americans are not getting enough of, not getting enough cancer screenings. We're not seeing people who are getting any of like the preventive services that we know we can do so that they can stay well and not get sick. What ends up happening is that there can be a buzz phrase or there can be something, and I'll say it comes in the form of a very popular Hollywood actor, both on and off the screen, who has tried certain kinds of diets, keto diets. A lot of that actually has shaped wellness. And I spend a disproportionate amount of my time talking to patients about how can they measure their macros. I'm not the nutritionist, Maya, you are, but I will spend 10 out of 20 minutes talking about keto diets. And what I'd love to do is see a portrayal of wellness where we weave in what we know and what we don't know and have very honest conversations. I think the most clear example also recently was around COVID. We've seen a lot of Hollywood portrayals around COVID very dramatic scenes in the ICU. But notice, Maya, not a lot of talk about a vaccine because sometimes it's not that cool to put vaccines in the middle of a very fast-paced Hollywood show. But that's my take on it as a physician. What about you, Maya? What's your view on how Hollywood portrays healthcare? I mean, Kavita, sometimes I have very similar experiences as a dietitian. I feel like folks watch a show like ER or House and they actually think they're doctors. And I'm like, just because you Googled how to fly an airplane does not mean that you can actually fly an airplane. Or just because you saw a TV show doesn't mean that you can self-diagnose. And so I spend quite a bit of time with patients saying things like, no, that at-home test does not replace your visit to a qualified healthcare provider. I'd like to refer you for a follow-up with X provider. And so it's really interesting because there's so much medicine that's happening in front of people. They feel like they've ingested it and that they understand it and know it. And I actually want them to reach out to providers. And as you said, go for those checkups, go for those screenings, be on top of your vaccine schedule really get to know with the help of someone who has had the training. 
And also, Maya, I, I love that, but I'm going to say, and I, I can say this as a physician, also be comfortable challenging conversations. We don't always have it right. I know that some of the most important words I say to patients are I don't know. And I think that that's also been lost. It's certainly not buzzy enough to be included in a television show, but we're including it on our show because I think we want to continue this conversation with someone who really has straddled these worlds of entertainment and health. I can't think of anybody better than the person we're going to hear from after the break, physician, TV writer, and friend, Dr. Neil Baer. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Well Now, Slate's podcast on health and wellness. And for this week, the theme is entertainment. I'm Kavita Patel. And I'm Maya Feller. Today, we're talking about how Hollywood shapes our ideas about health and wellness, how those ideas affect the care we give and receive. From emergency contraception to sexually transmitted infections, medical dramas have been used to teach viewers about the important health information they otherwise would not have known. Now, one of those shows that I absolutely love is the show ER. Take this episode that aired in 2000 called Be Patient. You can go ahead and get dressed. So I can go? No, your HIV test won't take long. I'd like you to wait. Oh, am I all right? Let's wait and see what the test says. The other girl looks okay, but give pathology to do a stat pap smear on this one. All right, let's get you dressed. In it, a nurse tests a teen for human papillomavirus, or HPV. Later, we find out that the teen contracts cervical cancer caused Thanks. by that HPV infection. Andrew, we got your test results. They found some abnormal cells in your pap smear. You might have cervical cancer. We need to do a biopsy just to make sure. Cancer? Is it caused by having sex? Well, you get it from an infected partner. It's called HPV, human papillomavirus. But not everybody with HPV has No, you has can't cervical- tell my parents. When this episode aired, the Kaiser Family Foundation surveyed viewers about their knowledge of HPV and its connection to cervical cancer. A week after the broadcast, the number of people who said they had heard of HPV nearly doubled, and those who correctly identified its connection to cervical cancer tripled. And Maya, I can't help but think I just reviewed a CDC notice for clinicians that talked about increasing rates of cervical cancer, particularly in certain parts of the country, the Southeast, other parts of the Northeast and Midwest, and even more disturbing is in an older age all pointing back to the fact that people are largely not getting screened. Some have said they have never even heard of an HPV vaccine, which is widely available. And it makes that episode in 2000 even more important in 2024 than ever. Absolutely, Kavita. I'd say it's time for a rerun, you know? So our guest today is Dr. Neil Baer, who wrote that episode. He's been nominated for several Emmys for his work as an executive producer and writer for ER. Currently, Dr. Bear is a public health advocate, author, lecturer at Harvard Medical School. Neil, thank you so much for joining us on Well Now. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And I have to say, it's not just shows like ER, Designated Survivor, as well as the CBS medical drama Gifted Man, 
and the executive producer of Law & Order Special Victims Unit. We'll get into a lot of that. All right. I am doing enough bragging for my friend and, and advocate. There's so many critiques of medical shows nowadays, Neil, and I think that it's fair to say that some of that critique comes from the medical community where people like myself say, hey, that's not an accurate representation of what's in a hospital. How do you deal with those critiques and that intersection as a TV writer and a physician? You know, it starts with ER. I was a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School when it first was launched, and I worked as a writer, producer, and ultimately the executive producer showrunner for seven years. And I was bugging a lot of my professors at Harvard and people at the CDC for information, and that helped to be the genesis of what's called Hollywood Health and Society. They provide, for the past 25 years or so, accurate information to writers of television shows and movies so that we're not putting out information that really directs people to do things like, you know, drink Clorox or take um, other, other odd drugs for COVID, let's say. So I felt it was really important to first understand, did our television shows make a difference? So uh, as you were talking about HPV and cervical cancer, when we did that show in 2000 with Juliana Margulies' character, we wanted to know, you know, do people learn anything? Because you have to learn something. You have to know to protect yourself. The vaccine wasn't available then in order to not contract human papillomavirus. So we were shocked at the number of people who actually said they learned. 60% said that they could identify HPV as the cause of cervical cancer after the show aired. And we didn't tell people to watch the show. These were viewers who watched two out of four episodes. So 60 percent times about 40 million viewers then, that's a lot of people who learned about HPV. Does that mean they're going to change their behavior? Not necessarily, but you have to know how HPV is transmitted in order to do anything about it. And fortunately, most uh, television shows have to go through uh, what's called standards and practices. And standards and practices really all know about uh, Hollywood Health and Society, and they make sure that we document what we're saying. So, for instance, when I did a show about the increasing number of people with measles in the United States, I had to document that. And I did through uh, data from the CDC, but I also had help from Hollywood Health and Society. So I watched this fantastic interview of you on SAG-AFTRA and you were talking about kind of the shift in what you were able to write about over the years on TV. And I would love for you actually to tell our listeners a little bit about your time as an early TV writer. Like what were the topics that you were able to cover? And also what are the differences that you see now? It's an incredible uh, saga. <laughs> and on ER in the 90s, from 94 to 2000 when I was on, we did the first ongoing story about someone who was HIV positive, played by the wonderful actor Gloria Rubin. Don't you ever treat me like that again. What the hell were you trying to do? I'm trying to save that man's life. By giving him AIDS? I was careful, Peter. I used universal precautions. You were working on a chest wound. What if you made a mistake, cut yourself, and bled into it? I didn't. Okay, what if I made a mistake and cut you? No person has ever got it from a contact in an ER. So does that mean no one can? You pile up all the data you want to. 
But you better damn well remember what really happens in this room, okay? So if you tested positive, you would have quit? In a minute. But you didn't test positive, did you? And in 94, when the show started, really there was no treatment. And by 96, there was treatment that saved lives. So we were able to get that out, but also a lot of misinformation about uh, healthcare professionals who were positive being allowed to work because they wouldn't transmit the infection. We did shows on HIV deniers. We did shows on gun violence as a public health issue. We look for various ways of telling stories about health that kind of break the traditional approach of just telling a straight drama to really emphasize the emotional aspects of, of these episodes. We wanted to get the information out there, but always in a, a way that is fluid, dramatic, and not pedantic, not telling people what they should or shouldn't do, but make it a part of a, a story. So we really wanted to dig into these health issues that are social, cultural, political, and economic as well. Neil, just to build on that, tell us a little more about how you bring some of the lessons learned from having to introduce tough topics while also dealing, even in today's entertainment era, since you are also an important part of the streaming landscape, developing shows for companies like Netflix. What does it look like in the writer's room? And how do these tough topics sometimes not make the screen? You know, I've been very fortunate in never being told I couldn't do a story, but I was fortunate because I was on shows that were super popular and we always backed up what we said with data. Now we're in a different milieu where often data doesn't mean anything. And so this is really problematic. It still means a lot. Fortunately, it means everything to the networks. They won't, at least as far as I know, put something on a drama that is not supported by the data. And I've been drawing from my own life. So I'm a pediatrician. So I've seen children shot. So we did episodes of ER where, guess what? Children were shot. I draw on what's going on in the country, the world. I wanted to do a show about guinea worm and, and uh, President Carter came to our set and thanked us because he helped eradicate it. So I stay as informed as possible reading not only newspapers, but journals to be inspired. We talk to opinion leaders. We bring in doctors, attendings, residents, interns, ER nurses, nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners to tell us stories, the things that move them most, what they'll never forget, the happiest moment, the most tragic moment, what they would, you know, never forget, things like that that are dramatic that then can inspire us as writers. And I use this mantra of, data, emotion, and action. So by that, I mean, I start with the data, something that moves me, inflames me, angers me. And then the emotion is the storytelling, what really moves people. People are not moved by data. There's a lot of work done by Paul Slovic, the University of Oregon, who talks about this. People are moved by stories. Why do we love songs, dance, poetry, movies? Because they move us emotionally, and we want to do something about it. And so then, we think it's important to inform the public, but we also think it's important to give them actionable steps. So it's data, emotion, then the action. And we, we design ways for people to take part and make a difference. 
So as we talk about moving into action, we're going to take a break here. But when we come back, more on wellness and entertainment with television writer Neil Bear. Stick around. Welcome back. You're listening to Well Now from Slate. I'm Maya Feller. And I'm Kavita Patel. We've been talking with television writer, physician, and educator Neil Baer about how Hollywood influences our ideas about health and wellness. Now, we know that you've written for Law & Order SVU, and it's really primarily about law enforcement. But can you tell us a little bit about how you use that data, emotion, and action to intersect with health on that show? Absolutely. So uh, as you were just saying, you feel you want to take action. Here's what happened. Always starts with the story and the data. So I met a young woman at an event that Mershka Harkate had for her foundation, Joyful Heart, which supports survivors of uh, sexual assault. And she told me she was afraid to leave her apartment. And I said, why? This was the first time she had left her apartment in a year. And she said, because she had been sexually assaulted, she underwent a rape kit, which is five to seven hours going over every inch of one's body, trying to get DNA evidence. And then it is supposed to be tested because often the perpetrators are in the system. They've, they've committed other crimes. They've committed sexual assaults before. They're out. Her rape kit wasn't tested. And I said, really? I've never heard about this. I think it was around 2006. And I was like, it's not. So I started doing research, the data, and I was shocked. Not thousands, tens of thousands of untested kits across the country. Now, if I had DNA, I wouldn't be calling you. Okay, thank you. Who's that? Detective in Houston, they have a backlog of 4,000 rape kits. He says he'll get me the results when he has them. Birmingham, more than 2,000 rape kits. Phoenix has 4,100 untested rape kits. Any yeses? Detroit, Chicago... So we wrote an episode starring Jennifer Love Hewitt about a young woman who was afraid, and they do catch him. But Chris Maloney and Mariska Hargitay say, we're telling the victims that they don't matter, and we're telling the perps they can get away with it. I wonder how many guys like Harris could have been stopped if those rape kits had been tested. Well, until they are... Everyone's just a victim who's never going to see justice. So this became Mariska's primary piece of her foundation of opening the backlog of rape kits. She did a a documentary on HBO, and she testified before Congress. I went uh, with her. We wrote articles. So to date, there are a number of states that have cleared the backlog, and there are other states that are in the process. And this is, I think, blossomed from this show and Mariska's efforts now. Uh, for many years since the show aired. But you start with the story and it really blossoms and lots of uh, seeds are planted. And now Congress is working on opening all the, the rape kits. And it's important because there are so many people who are out there who could have been taken off the streets. And Chris Maloney says that in the show, you know, we could have prevented this had we had the political will to open the backlog of rape kits. So that's an example of a health issue. I call that certainly a health issue. It's certainly a mental health issue. It's a physical health issue. And there was, you know, there were actionable steps given 
to the viewers. It's a really good example of how you can make a difference. At the same time, that spurred kind of a series of conversations, Congress, White House, people were all kind of like, is this actually real? What is the Department of Justice doing? Why isn't this happening? And so there is a domino effect that often none of the public see, and that, but yet I think can make such an important difference and truly change lives. I actually think that that's not just the kind of thing that changed lives for rape victims, but it changed lives for so many people who felt like their voice hadn't been heard. Thank you. It's, it's, it was, uh, you know, spurred by a real story, a real emotional story that hit me that night. I'll never forget it. And I knew, you know, I have to do a show about this. And Neil, as you're thinking about bringing some of those newer topics into these stories, I know you said, you know, when you first began writing that there was a lot more tolerance and appetite for very cutting edge health and science information. Do you feel like now people are actually going to believe it, A, and (laughs) because, you know, there is some question where folks are like, they question the science. Is it true, right? Is it real? So we look at peer-reviewed journals, the best we can do, you know, even though sometimes there are corrections (laughs) in these journals. So always looking at the data. We also work with our students at Harvard, and uh, we bring people from the Kennedy School and the Shorenstein Center, where they do a lot of work on mis- and disinformation. And we talk about how that information kind of flows and how it starts and how it builds and how we can address it. So, for instance, vaccine hesitancy. Researchers at Michigan, University of Michigan, understood, I think correctly, the reasons people don't get vaccinated are not monolithic. It's not because they think the vaccines don't work or they think the vaccines will hurt them. There's history of vaccines. There's history of experimentation, particularly on black people. There are a lot of reasons. It's not monolithic. So these researchers understood that shame doesn't move people. So they developed an approach called be a protector where they told people stories like, you know, these were people who tended not to be concerned about the community, but they, of course, are concerned about their families. Everybody is. And so it was like, be a protector. If you have a a grandmother who has a COPD, if your spouse has lupus, if your child has asthma, really think about just your sphere and be a protector so that they don't contract something that can really harm them because they are already often immunocompromised. So this had some strong impact as opposed to you were going out in the community and you're going to infect somebody and, you know, how could you do this? And we actually, from their research, saw that if you identified as a Democrat, about 75% said that they were concerned about the community. If you identified as a Republican, about 75% identified with the freedom. So we had to look at, you know, families and freedom is important, but what about your own family? So we look at the way we tell stories and there's not one story fits all. Neil, in that looking at, you know, how stories are told and really trying to identify that tipping point that moves people, you did such a, I mean, it's incredible how you just really hit it right there. People don't trust health 
care providers anymore, right? There's this question of whether or not they should get a vaccine. Is the vaccine going to do something, quote unquote, to them? How do you feel like the media can help win that trust back? And can it? So I think media is one part of the solution, if there is a solution to this. So by that, I mean, it's not just about TV being the the only way. This is a multiple, a multi-pronged approach. And TV or various other arts and humanities approaches, plus really supporting communities, because that's where the action takes place. That's why we, we give people actionable steps to go to their community to open rape kits or to make clean water in schools available. I look at our stories as, you know, matches to ignite and hope that they help. But I don't see anything as one way. It's a community effort. Dr. Neil Bear is an award-winning showrunner, television writer, producer, physician, author, public health advocate, expert, and an all-around great human being. Thank you so much, Neil, for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's Well Now for this week. Our show is produced by Vic Whitley-Berry. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's Vice President of Audio. You can follow our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple or Spotify. It helps more listeners find the show. If you have something you'd like us to cover, email the show at wellnow@slate.com. Join us again next Wednesday as we tackle another story from the wellness industry. I'm Maya Fowler. And I'm Kavita Patel. Thanks for listening.